0: There's a deeper question, you know, has the city lost its soul and has it changed, has its charisma been, uh, been lost? And I think there, they're, I, I tease all these things out, but I don't have the answers.
1: That was Andy Spinoza at our recent Mill Members Club talking about his new book about the recent history of the city. This is a special episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mill.
2: Hello there, welcome to this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mill with me, Daryl Morris, uh, and the editor of the Mill, Yoshi Herman. Hello, Yoshi. Hello, how are you doing? I'm very well, we're separated by a couple of hundred miles this week. Uh, oh right, where I'm, are you? Where are you? Uh, I'm in London, and you were a guest on, on my show actually. This I week, was, though.
1: yeah, um, I was the other night, um, was really pleased to come in, you asked me to come and talk about that Oldham um, kind of Rajamir story that, you know, listeners know all about. Um, and the way in which politics in Oldham has been upended by ideas about grooming gangs and stuff, which is very topical. And yeah, thanks
2: very much for having me on. I can also tell you that The Mill was being uh, spoken about very favourably in the Times newsroom, uh, the Times radio newsroom this week, uh, literally just today. Lots of people saying very nice things, including Jane Garvey, broadcasting legend, uh, who says that she's heard of The Mill and she likes The Mill. Uh, She likes the idea. I think she's read The Mill, but she likes the idea of The Mill. Uh, So feel free to put that somewhere. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Right. Stop the recording.
1: Let's talk about what people have been saying about the mill. That's the key. (laughs) Um, No, that's really
2: good. I mean, if people like the idea, then that's uh, that's half the battle, isn't it? So, yeah. Delighted to hear that. Uh, okay, uh, this is going to be a special edition of the Mill podcast though this week, uh, because you, Yoshi, have been in conversation. Just give us a bit of a, just tee us up uh, for, for what we're going to hear uh, in a little minute, which is um, uh, uh, Andy Spinoza in conversation with you at one of the Mill's first Mill members events. Yeah, so this was the first Mill members club of the year.
1: Um, we did it in associate with um, the help of, of Manchester University Press. They are publishing this book by Andy Spinoza um, called Manchester Unspun. I've mentioned it a few times on the podcast, so a bit of a broken record perhaps, but um, this was my conversation in the room with Andy Spinoza. He started or co-founded City Life. So in effect, we had something kind of in common there, both starting kind of independent media things in Manchester. Um, he then went into PR. He represented a lot of the developers and, and property people in the city. So he's got a very interesting perspective. And um, we had a really good conversation, which you'll hear in a minute. Um, and he's he's very kind of, honest um and he's honest about the things he feels he you know he's in two minds about or and he's 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 a blunt in places which i really like and um it was a really really good
2: um atmosphere at night so um looking forward to to that going out on the podcast as well Great, excellent. Okay, we'll hear more about that in a little while. Uh, firstly, uh, we're going to spend the first 15 minutes, uh, Yoshi, uh, talking about Bolton Wanderers' emphatic victory over of Plymouth Argyle <laughs> at Wembley. <laughs>
1: of the I saw this actually. I was following this,
2: not because I
1: support Bolton, obviously, but my friend is a huge Plymouth fan and he was at, um, it was at Wembley, wasn't it? Some massive city in London. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And, um, yeah, he sent a picture of um, himself in this huge stadium. I was like, wow, that looks really cool. What is that? And I went on PPC Sport. <laughs> and then I saw that his team was getting absolutely destroyed
2: uh, by Bolton. So you must have been really happy. I was delighted. Very, very delighted. And actually, uh, it was the, the highest attended match, football match in Europe. Uh, this season, uh, this, uh, sorry, that, that weekend, not this season, obviously. Uh, that weekend, uh, not a great, not uh, not a great start, but sure, sure. <laughs> well, I mean, eighty thousand people at Wembley for two League One teams yeah. um, in a in a, in a sort of lesser cup. It is significant, by the way. I know I, I jest about wanting to talk about it, but it is significant mm. because mm. it was a it was a massive advert for the football pyramid, uh, mm. how well supported League One teams are, and mm. for Bolton in particular. Um, an incredible moment, given the fact that they, you know, the club, we almost went out of business. Uh, mm. The town has suffered so badly. And the the massive role that football plays in our northern communities and mm. the, su- the recent success of Bolton Wanderers in clawing back from the brink of extinction and what that means for the town. So there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. Yeah. It's a big it's a really and big it's actually, that's the mad thing about football in this
1: country, actually, is that you go to the third tier, League One, confusingly called League One, and massive crowds, like I went to Sheffield Wednesday, who I believe are also in League One, um, and just like with Hillsborough, right? Enormous um, cop stand behind one of the goals, Whether in the summer, it's boiling hot and like, um, just unbelievable support that you get at, yeah, these teams, I think in other countries, these
2: teams would have like 2,000 people there and some of them have got like 20,000 people there. So yeah, amazing. Exactly. Um, Okay, Um, let's get to some business before we hear from Andy Spinoza. Um, A story in Manchester this week, Yoshi, about a construction worker being hospitalised after being injured while working on a new high-rise development in Deansgate. What happened here? Yeah, I was actually walking back from the gym, because I go to the gym in Spinningfields,
1: and I walked past um, a spot on Deansgate where there were hundreds, literally hundreds of construction workers all out. And I asked them what had happened, and they said there'd been a fire, And maybe that was inaccurate because it turns out um, that what happened was, first of all, Greater Manchester Police received reports of an explosion at the site, but the developer Solboy, said that they've confirmed there was no explosion and the worker concerned in this accident was trying to unblock a pipe uh, connected to a concrete pump. Um, This is Viaducts, a 40-storey tower with luxury apartments, um, 20,000 square feet of office space, Uh, apparently it's costing 300 million. And it's expected to be completed next year so the the worker sustained injuries to his calf um he's since been released from hospital and i think work on the site has um carried on and uh yeah a bit of a sort of um reminder of how we've got all these towers and we've got all these just a massive amount of development i think we've got more development happening than any city in europe by some measures and you've got all these people who some of them doing quite risky dangerous um jobs and yeah there are accidents we wrote about this when we did the thing about the crane operators there are accidents uh, maybe it's something we should pay more attention to because these um these the people who work on those sites are taking are taking
2: real risk to do their job sometimes yeah very much so a reminder of the risk involved um, and mm-hmm. elsewhere yoshi salford city council have published a new five-year plan to prevent homelessness in the city what's this about
1: yeah so you might remember that our big story last year, mostly focused on Manchester. So we did this big investigation, loads of data into homelessness. And we mostly focused on the fact that Manchester as the city, the borough, um, has extremely bad numbers compared to comparable cities. And actually, one of the interesting things is that Salford's numbers when it comes to, for example, the number of people on the streets or the number of people in temporary accommodation are not so bad. And that's one of the reasons why Manchester looks so bad, because you'd think, well, very comparable city, very comparable economy and that kind of thing. Anyway, the council's got this new strategy. Councils always have these strategies. So I think the more important thing is, like, are they able to deliver on it? From what I understand about Salford and looking at the numbers, they don't have like an incredibly bad situation. But anyway, they, they've said they want to focus on earlier identification, uh, which is a big thing that came out of our story about Manchester. Um, there, the title of the report is homelessness is everyone's business. Um, and the chief executive of the council, Tom Stannard, who I've actually met a couple of times, he said, we want earlier identification of those who are at risk so we can step in and help out. And he wants more working with other organizations. So all very on vogue on brand for what councils are supposed to be doing earlier,
2: uh, prevention, way more coordination between different, different agencies and stuff. Uh, that's their, that's their game plan. Okay, Andy Burnham has been in The Guardian as well, hasn't he, this week? Yoshi, what's he been saying?
1: Yeah, so he's written about Greater Manchester's need to acknowledge its links to transatlantic slavery. This obviously follows The Guardian's Cotton Capital Project, which has been investigating The Guardian's links to slavery, Manchester's links to slavery. We talked about this last week, didn't we? It was interesting, actually. We went big in our Monday briefing on this Guardian story about how black people are underrepresented in manchester in like leading um, leadership jobs so they they reckon according to their analysis uh that there should be many many more um black leaders in in key institutions we've actually had a bit of a pushback to that story or the fact that we quoted that story from some readers who said hang on they are looking at the percentage of uh, black people who live in Manchester, which is, you know, the city of Manchester, which is just under 15%. And they're saying, well, only just under 5% or so of, of leaders are are black. But actually, they should be looking at Greater Manchester, which apparently has more of a 5% sort of black population, which would tally up with the leadership numbers. Now, I think there's some validity to that pushback because they did include institutions like Greater Manchester Police or Manchester United, Greater Manchester Police is obviously a Greater Manchester thing, not just a Manchester thing. Manchester United is technically based in um, in Trafford. So I can kind of understand that. But I did think it was a very important analysis. Like, I think we should be looking at stuff like that. Um, because actually, why doesn't Manchester have any black MPs? Why don't so many of the key institutions have any black leadership? Um, why is the council... So overwhelmingly white. I think those are really good questions to ask. And if you look at the leadership of Greater Manchester's councils as well, I looked at the other day, all of the leaders of the councils are white. So I think it's, um, whether or not their methodology was 100% um, sound, I think it's uh, it's an
2: important issue to raise. Um, okay. And, and their, pro- their their series is definitely doing that. Okay. Um, yeah, really interesting. Um, Why are people talking about Manchester Cathedral this week as well? Or certain sections of... Twitter and the media are talking about uh, Manchester, Council, uh, Manchester Cathedral. It's either because I made an appearance there last night at
1: Evensong um, with my girlfriend and her parents because they're visiting from Romania and people were so excited to see me. Or it is because there has been an iftar um, held there. So this is a kind of community-building um, initiative where the, 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 the cathedral invites you know, Muslim local people to come in and, 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 and have their iftar in there. Um, the the prayers um that accompany an iftar describe Muhammad as God's messenger and um and, and God as one. And and that has really annoyed some right wing commentators. So you've got people like Douglas Murray um on on, on Twitter saying you know would a mosque ever invite christians not only to come into the mosque but also to kind of talk about how jesus christ is the only god or anything like that i mean if an iftar is actually a breaking of the fast so on the one hand like you know it's 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 uh it's 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 to do with ramadan and it's you know i'm no expert but it's 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 about this this eating um and 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 this anger online i mean to me it seems a little bit odd that people are getting so angry you know, I mean, whether or not mosques would allow Christian people to come in and, and, and do a similar thing. I think I see it as a good thing that, you know, Christian spaces can welcome people in. And also, just also, Daryl, just on like a more prosaic level, the cathedral is massive. You go to most events there, like I went to Evensong last night, not that many people there, you know, like, a dozen or two dozen people there it's an enormous space it costs so much to maintain it's one of the most beautiful and most ancient places in our city why shouldn't different communities come in and use it i mean i'm not a you know i'm not religious enough to, to weigh in on, on that side of things but i think um i think you know kind of like the more different events happening in the manchester baroque are always doing concerts in there that are really good i think the more events are happening in there the better because it is a stunning space some of the like wood carvings in the sort of choir section of the cathedral are like you know 500 years old like it's it's an, it's an unreal space so um yeah the, the they they're under pressure from certain you know sexes of the of the political pundit class but um I think um, the more people
2: who, who pile into the cathedral and see how amazing it is, probably the, um, the better. Mm. Um, okay, that's you briefed on everything you need to know this week. Uh, Yoshi, take us to our main feature of this podcast, which is a mill event with Andy Spinoza, the author um, you interviewed him about his book, Tears Up. Yeah.
1: So so Andy Spinoza has written this book and it, it's an insider's account of recent Manchester history, right? It's really interesting because it's basically the last 30 years or so from the perspective of someone who ran City Life and then the perspective of someone who was in all the key meetings with developers and counsellors and local leaders as, as a PR person, as a comms person. So it's both a recent history and it's a memoir Um, Andy Spinoza came to our first Mill Members Club to speak to me about it. Um, We are gonna pick up the audio from when he comes on stage and we start talking about his book, Manchester Unspun. Okay, next up tonight, um, the story of an overconfident southerner coming to Manchester, having the audacity to take on the MEN, the chutzpah to take on the MEN. But enough about me, Andy Spinoza (laughs) is gonna come to the stage. So the first time that I heard about you, Andy, was someone said on the phone, someone told me about you as a sort of PR supremo. That was the first um, incarnation. Um, The second time I heard about you was when I read your review of um, one of my least favorite books, uh, Paul Morley's book about Tony Wilson that some of you may have read. A rave review. It was a rave review and it made me think, Andy Spinoza has no taste at all, um, because it was a terrible book, and I worried, you know, I, I worried, I worried that you wouldn't be, we wouldn't be on the same page. The third thing I found out about you was that you had started or co co-founded City Life, and that's kind of when we started to 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 talk a little bit, and and you came along to the office, and you started advising us and that kind of thing, because there are obvious parallels uh, between you starting an independent media thing and us starting an independent media thing. And ever since then, we've kind of been uh, we've been talking. So, the Morley book that I referred to, um, I thought was a, an appalling and tedious mess. Your book, fortunately,
0: is not. I, I admire Morley's style, but I but I, I it's not it's not my style.
1: <laughs> Manchester Unspun: Pop, Property, and Power in the Original Modern City. What were you trying to do with this book?
0: Well, firstly. Um, I closed my PR business during COVID and I had a lot of time on my hands. And a guy came to my house, Professor John Savage, who's um, very, probably the most eminent sort of academic style uh, writer on pop culture. And he was looking through my 25 boxes of yellowing music magazines um, and boxes of Ticket stubs, lanyards, backstage passes, and, and and loads of brochures as well from regeneration. Or oh, I kept I keep everything I kept everything print print wise uh, since I was sixteen. And I said, look, my my wife would love to get all this old crap out of the, out of the house, John. And he said, he's very posh. He looked over and I said. Oh, Andy, that's what we call an archive. <laughs> um, anyway, so it's ended up in the John Ryland's library uh, as part of the uh, British Pop Archive, along with Ian Curtis's lyrics and, uh, and other, other eminent people's uh, stuff. And he said to me, look, you've been, you know, you've you been around for 40 years, you've been in the mix, uh, lots of important things happen, why don't you write a book? And... It opened a little window in my mind. I started to think about um, <clears throat> lots of things that I, I remembered, but I had never written down. Um, and then I read a quote by Tony Wilson in 2007. <clears throat> and he said, I don't see this. And it was, it was a documentary um, on Joy Division. And he said, I don't see this as a story of a band. I see this as the story of a city. Um, Joy Division's music. Has, met, has, has transformed this great city. And I thought, well, I've heard that before, and I thought it was preposterous at the time. Um, ludicrous, classic, Wilson, over the top. And I started to think about it, and, I, and it kind of revealed, I thought, a sort of a slow-motion epiphany that he had a point. And not only that, in 2007, um, I, I launched as a PR guy the Beetham Tower... The topping out of the Beetham Tower, which was national news that day, um, it opened in 2008 as a hotel and apartments. And what happened in 2008? It was a bloody great economic crash. Nothing was built in Manchester for five years after that. So every, almost everything you see around you now that's tall has, has happened literally in the last eight or nine years, which is really quite astonishing. I mean, the more, you know we get used to it the more we take it for granted but that rate of accelerated development is is um is probably unique in europe Um, so anyway i to answer your question i started to piece together and stitch together all the bits and pieces uh and i think there is a dotted line more than a dotted line between that band everything that came out of it and a kind of a a financial audit trail leading to this, what we see today.
1: So we're going to come back to that question right at the end. I'm going to pull out a few bits of the book that I found really interesting and ask you about them. But first of all, you came to Manchester in the late 70s. And a lot of people you meet here, if they're not from Manchester, they came here because of the universities or the art school or or the music schools. You were one of those people. What was it that kept you in the city after you graduated... And what did, what was that thing that kept so many people here after they went to the universities?
0: Well, over a period of 40 years, things change, obviously. But for me, uh, I mean, I felt very comfortable in Manchester. I lived in Hume. I liked going to Hacienda and, and a million other places. Um, and really, uh, at the end of my university time, I was setting up City Life. In fact, I just wasted my uh ma year grant on setting up city life um and really i was in the middle you know i didn't have time to sleep hardly so it was less of a i'm going to stay in manchester it was more i'm going to set up a magazine here i am and i've been here ever since now i've seen lots of people contemporaries depart to london where you know the streets with media people are are kind of paved with gold maybe less so now but certainly in the 80s 90s um, but I never really wanted to leave because every year I, I could see something new, different and interesting happening. Um, and I was never motivated by money particularly, so uh, <laughs> which helps in Manchester, uh, in the media. And um, yeah, so never wanted to leave.
1: I think I'm going to cl- hit the clicker. Oh, God. <laughs> that off Here Facebook, he is. I think. Um, yeah, I had to dig to dig into your private Stopping social me. media. So that is you. At what age? Twenty, I think. 20, 20 actually, yeah. So that's, 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 the time, that's the time we're talking about. So City Life. It, people tell me that in order to create a media company, you used to have to print things on paper, mm. deliver them, distribute them. What was the What was the thinking behind City Life, and how how on earth did you keep well, it going? We were
0: very influenced by. Um, you know there has been a tradition. There's a very good book by an academic called Bob Dickinson called "Imprinting the Sticks," and it it traces um, alternative print from the 60s and 70s. There was something called Mole Express. Then there was, other, there was Grass Eye, I think. But but Manchester New Manchester Review was still going when I arrived. And I remember buying copies from the Precinct Centre, which is where Blackwells is now. Um, and it gave people like um, Valdemar Januszak from the Sunday Times, Paul Morley, lots of people their first um, scribblings, you know. And it was quite well produced as well. But it was the investigative, dirt-digging side, the sort of private eye style that uh, that that was part of the mix that really intrigued us when we were set up City Life. So <clears throat> there was that tradition. But then after the review and before us, there was something called Manchester Flash. I don't know if any of you are old enough. Dave Carter will definitely remember. People are nodding. So what Manchester Flash was, was a tabloid uh, newspaper style uh, format that aspired to take the alternative magazine into a sort of what we would then call a yuppie market that all the adverts for futons and cars and things would kind of float the uh the alternative news it, it, it i think it got quarter of a million pound from uh, various funders and it collapsed after 13 issues and it was so that the the idea of the alternative magazine was di- was dismissed and derided in manchester wasn't it and basically only a few idiots like us with no money who would who could do it with no with no money almost no money just putting all the in not proper jobs really Manchester Flash had proper jobs and ex- commercial execs with cars and all that. This was never going to happen. We had to do it from sort of the grassroots up, and because we had nothing else to do and we were a bit obsessed about it, we did it. We never we missed an issue. Five years and then it went bust.
1: <laughs> your next, your next move, I think, before before it went bust was going to the MEN.
0: Boo. Um, um, it was so. It was. <sighs> So I left, I left before it went into administration <coughs> and about the same time the MEN were uh, taking it over. I was a freelance journalist so I was doing shifts, I did shifts for five years, I did three days a week on the diary page and then pop reviews and features and stuff.
1: And what was the, so, so we're talking... Um, we're talking 88, 89. Possibly, yeah. So possibly the sort of peak of the MEN's financial clout and powers. what was it like inside the MEN at that
0: time? What, how big was it? Well, you know, it had a, it had execs with cars, it had canteen, it had three men in uh, three uh, showbiz guys in London, a Westminster correspondent, Gerald Kaufman MP did the book reviews. You know, it was a thick old beast. Actually, the financial heyday was probably the 60s, mm. um, and a lot of people don't know that. The financial health of the Evening News, basically the small ads of the Evening News all over gra- uh, Greater Manchester and beyond, basically propped up the Guardian, the liberal voice of, of the nation for decades, really. Mm. Um, heads I, spin- I think we've.
1: I think we've got a photo of you. There we go. Is, <laughs> is that the MEN? Days? So that's when
0: I was a I was um, diary guy running around town. Photographer rang said. Noel Gallagher's back in town he's walking down Oxford Road so it was easy for me to run out of the office and, and ambush him and uh, I said what, you, what, what are you back for and Noel? He said just walking around you know." <laughs> I really like the new Bridgewater Hall so I had to get a line out of him he, he, I think he was hung over he wasn't very happy that's for sure um, and that was so my um, job I was told by the editor several times the only real praise he ever gave me was no one reads all the serious stuff said so they only they turned to the sport and the diary uh, so that was, that was
1: nice there's a, there's an g- interesting thing in your book about how there was a a kind of tradition at the men that you could only edit the paper if you were from north manchester or north of greater manchester i guess because the men that was the men's base and its identity and you couldn't have a sort of posh south manchester uh, dweller editing and y- uh, did you did you apply for the editorship?
0: I, I, I yeah, I mean, I left the AM um, in 1988, uh, and not long after I had applied for the editorship and yeah. didn't get an interview. I was never going to get the job. I was just sort of doing that corporate thing of hey, notice me. <laughs> and I w- and my comments actually are not around any kind of sour grapes because I've never got the job, but it was n- it was known within the newspaper. And I write a lot about this in the book, a lot about North Manchester and South Manchester the differences. And I see there's a report today, the uh, mm. mill might have covered it, about accents and gentrification. But the sale of the NEN and the tone of, of voice and the story angles were very much uh, geared towards um, a traditional working class heartland that North Manchester is. I mean, and not just North Manchester, you know, Bolton, Salford, mm-hmm. uh, Wigan and the paper went to all the way out to Warrington, Blackpool. So, you know, it was it was felt and there was a great journalist, Paul Taylor, who was from Oldham and I said to someone, he'd make a great editor. And they said, yeah, he's a fantastic journalist, make a great editor, but they think he's a South Manchester type. <laughs> <laughs> he, he'll never get the job. <laughs> and and you know, and anyone who remembers the evening news from those days will remember the stories uh about gay people and just little the headlines and the tone of voice and you know everything right through to football coverage being very very dominant yeah they knew their market and i'm you know and i'm not i'm not i i think don't think the book is judgmental in in many areas it's just observational yeah. and it's an observation that I think is, is is worthy of uh, bringing out.
1: Yeah, definitely. Before we get into these different passages, the the last sort of major career move for you was going from being a hack to being a flack, becoming a PR. Um, And you write in the book that you went into PR because you wanted to be inside the room. You felt like Manchester was changing so fast and you didn't want to be the guy waiting outside to do the interview. You wanted to be in the meeting room deciding the strategy and that kind of thing. Did that completely change your role? Like, did you had you did you completely go from feeling like an outsider to an insider at that point? At that point in your career.
0: So, when I left the news, the journalists I couldn't couldn't believe it. Everyone said, "What are you doing? Uh, I had the best job in Manchester. I went to parties and just hopped up with celebrities and rolled in the next day and wrote about it. It was a lot of fun. Um, but I could, you know, I was." Uh, reporting on things like the McEnroe Group controversy of 1996. This is when um, Marketing Manchester launched its new logo and uh, strategy for Manchester and unveiled at Bridgells Hall this strapline, we're up and going, <laughs> uh, that was described as a, cy- as a cycling proficiency badge. <laughs> so I was kind of talking to Tom Bloxham and Nick Johnson and the, the entrepreneurs coming through and I was you know I've, I've enjoyed their ideas and I could see the achievements that people like Urban, Urban Splash were, were making and um, you know I did think when I sat at the PR agency that I could see a new Manchester emerging and I wanted to be part of that more than I wanted to write showbiz stories and follow the uh, everyday ups and downs of, of Coronation Street you know, styles who didn't really interest me so, and I think, I write about it, and I call it, and I thought it was a noble mission to regenerate this, the city centre, and I wanted to throw my lot in with these people. And So, yeah, very quickly, I was in meetings with Howard Bernstein and not Richard Lees immediately, but but you know, with those kinds of people talking about projects and what I could do to put Manchester centre stage in national media, which which wasn't very much at the time.
1: So I'm gonna pull out a bit from, your, from the book um, and ask you about it. There's a really interesting passage. In the summer of 92, to mark the Hacienda's 10th anniversary, and I'm gonna read now. Tony Wilson, commissioned writer and journalist John Savage, a former Granada TV researcher and longtime factory collaborator, to edit a celebratory book, The Hacienda Must Be Built, Okay, so you were asked to write something for that book, Mm. and it seems like you took quite a bold approach. You write here, I wrote about the way pop culture's sexual politics seemed to have changed, and the hacienda's role as a space where some backwards attitudes had taken hold. I was hardly going out on a limb. The new musical express had created a storm in November 1991, when the late Stephen Wells, always happy to interrogate the the politics and music, had skewered Happy Monday's Sean Ryder and Bez with their own prejudices. And then you've got these awful quotes that they gave in that, in that interview, homophobic, so homophobic I kind of don't want to read them. You carry on, and I'm going to read this bit first. You, 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 that piece that you wrote didn't make the book, obviously, because it was a promotional book. And you, write, you later published it elsewhere, and I want to uh, quote quote that piece because I found this quite striking. I, I, I didn't know this piece had existed. So you were told you couldn't run it, and, and in that piece you wrote... C- City, City Life uh, ran it in the end. City Life ran it in the end. The Hacienda must take its share of the blame. The best club in pop culture's capital was often at Madchester's, Madchester, Dizzy Heights, a deeply unpleasant place, crawling with bimbos and their pistol-packing sugar daddies. We danced on, oblivious. Oblivious was where we wanted to be, to the undercurrents. It was hip to be thick, cool to be criminal. Girls adopted the stone chick look. Clubbers dressed down, and worse, they thought down. So you were writing, in in slightly the language of of the day, you were writing quite a quite a critique of, of, of a nightclub and, a, and a, in, a, in a sense a whole movement that you held very affectionately yeah. how was that how was that um received at the time
0: Well, it was re- received very well from the people who read it when uh, it was published in city life so the little bit of backstory is that john savage said to me write a piece whatever you like uh it's going to go in this book and i wrote that i wrote a piece that i felt was pushing you know, Wilson was a provocateur. I wanted to provoke him back, and um, the piece is, is along those lines. And I sort of looked, I, I talked a lot, of, I talked in that piece and I do in the book about the, the phase of Hacienda that I think's been really missed out in all the kind of cartoonish reductionism that's gone on. It's all about Manchester. For me, 82 to 88 was where all the very interesting things went on. It was very experimental, daring, interesting. And so, that's what I wrote, that, you know, uh, Wilson, uh, so Savage rang me, he said, first of all, he said, look, I think we need to make some edits. I said, fine. Uh, I've actually got, and it's in the Pop Archive, I was going to put it in the book, but it's a bit boring, He of his crossings out of certain paragraphs <laughs> and what they were going to print. And then he said, Rob Grant's got involved, the, the New Order Manager, Factory Director. You can't run it. We'll run the piece in it that I wrote for The Face, which was kind of an important um, record of the whole gang thing. And I was fine because it was their book. It was them celebrating themselves. Uh, Why should they tolerate someone having a go at them? I actually think in a different time, if they hadn't have been bruised from the real heavy gangland stuff that was going on, bruised and and, uh, battered by finances, uh, reputational... You know it be, hasenda become a kind of byword for gang violence that in a different time they might have they might have run that, but not right then they were too they were hurting too much so when I ran it uh, when Mike Hill ran it under exclusive the article the Hacienda Band that's <laughs> a kind of a Mike Hill impression <laughs> he was the editor of City Life at the time um but um it it just didn't have a very wide readership, mm. and it didn't really go mm. to london and so I thought, obviously, having written it, and it'd be re- reasonably interesting in the context of today's sexual politics, um, just to remind people that that happened, that article happened, and that I was actually channeling a lot of concern that the Hacienda and Factory records actually had been kind of taken over with this this, this yobbish mentality that while Ryder, you Ryder know, may have been seen by... Uh, Tony Wilson as, you know, the finest poet since W.B. So, the Hacienda wasn't exactly full of sensitive poets at that time. Yeah,
1: uh, and, and that theme comes out, comes out in the book really well. Right, second passage, which is in pink, according to my system. So, there's... Sorry. There's a great anecdote here about you working with Gary Neville. Um, there are some scoops in this book. There are some scoops. And um, you write here, so you, he was trying to develop this tower. St. Michael's. Succeeded. He succeeded. <laughs> you would have seen the news today. They're turning it into a, 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 a posh hotel. At the time, he was facing some backlash for the original plan, which I think had two towers and, and, and a huge number of people didn't like it. And I want to use this to get into your views on development a little bit. You write, my relationship with Neville ended brusquely. So we're at the end of the engagement here. After a disagreement about PR tactics, he rejected my view on how he planned to present results of a public consultation. (laughs) Quote Neville, I have never seen such an unprofessional email in my life. If you have an opinion, you consult me first. Please stand down. End quote. As one property consultant said to me, quote, Gary very much values the views of his consultants as long as they agree with his own. (laughs) um so that's a wonderful um bit and when i write about this book i'm obviously going to quote that the i you go on to say a couple of paragraphs later perhaps it's slightly unfair to quote one line here but you refer to in that row a loose coalition of shrill anti-development views which could could be heard getting challenges in so what you're hearing there was this kind of The city was changing fast, towers were going up, and you felt there was this kind of caucus of loud voices who were anti-development. I wanted to highlight that because I'm interested in... You have had an intimate involvement with the way the city's been changing. And I wonder, in your mind, what's good development and not good development? What, what What should people feel uncomfortable about in the way that the city's changing, and what should they think is...
0: Um, is is legitimate? Where, where you must have thought about that a lot. Well, you read you read the end of the book where you know I, I say I'm extremely conflicted. I mean, I can't I can't pretend that I've had nothing to do with it. Um, the Evening News said, my uh, he, the headline of the Evening News piece was, I feel guilty like I've bloody masterminded the thing myself. You know, I mean, I'm not Howard Bernstein. But um, that was
1: the MEN story last week about that. The book. Was
0: the, it was a great story, but the headline was, i was not getting to, was clickbait <laughs> or not. But we can talk about that. I, the, the word that I follow that shrill line with the example of Adam Prince and um, whatever his uh, thing was called. Uh, what was it called? Manchester Shield. And Shield. Um, you know, no one could say that he's not he was not hyperbolic, and um, you know, throwing out all kinds of you know, legally dubious claims and th- uh, uh, threats and all sorts of th- so. He got, but he got people's attention, and the number, and I, I discussed the number of developers that invited him into their tent, you know, to say, all right, Adam, you uh, give us your views. Um, so I just wanted to make that point that yeah. I didn't. It's not just a throwaway line without, um, you know, without examples. What's good and what's bad? I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not any kind of an urban expert. I'm not any kind of a. Um, of, uh, I'm not a politician. I don't, I'm not asking anyone to vote for me. To me, I've written an account and I think I've been as even-handed as possible. I want to let people make up their own minds mm. uh, and my while that might be described as a cop-out, I don't want to tell anyone what to think. I want people to look at all the information and, and then decide for themselves. But why is
1: it that you feel conflicted? Talk us through a little bit of there are definitely some developments you've been involved in that you thought were brilliant um, and and do you know what?
0: I sold every single flat in this building. Wow! In in, in 1999 or 2000, a guy approached at me called Roger Shoesmith, who who was done this building up, and said, "We want to put it. Uh, we want to get some publicity for it." Uh, I sent a press release to the Sunday Times, and they rang me up saying, "We ra- we gather the Telegraph are going to run this this weekend. We want to beat them." I hadn't even sent it the Telegraph. Anyway, it went in on the Sunday Times. The phone on the Monday—they hadn't got anyone on the phone in for this. The sales of this but on the Monday, they took hundreds of voicemails, and every single apartment in here sold out uh, mm-hmm. over that weekend, basically. So, anyway, I think it's a great building, <laughs> um, and there are lots of building. There are lots of buildings like it. However. Would I want to live in, a na- in an in an early 19th century uh, building that wasn't built as an a- as an apartment? Not personally. Um, there are buildings that are much more energy efficient that people live in all over the city that maybe don't look a- as uh, visually appealing. Um, who am I to say they shouldn't live in them? Some of the modern buildings I find very um, li- leave me cold and certainly the scale and massing of <laughs> just whatever we can look outside in any direction uh is completely at odds with with the historical um urban grain and um, I just make all these dis these these point observations as a layperson really without any real expertise um I think there's a deeper question is you know has the city lost its soul and has it changed? Has its charisma been uh, been lost? And I think they're, they're, I, dr- I tease all these things out, but I don't have the answers.
1: The uh, third bit of the book, Has the City Lost Its Soul? I feel like that will be a question from someone. The third bit of the book I want to get to, there's a, a thread running through your book, which is about how Manchester, in this period that you're writing about, was very much run by a small clique, a small group of people, including Bernstein, Sir Richard Lees, a bunch of um, favoured developers, favoured architects, uh, favoured consulting firms. And there's a great bit of this book where you talk about the period when that started to be talked about more in the public domain, which we've talked about before. I'm gonna read a paragraph. There was an interview where Bernstein was asked about this and, and and this paragraph you wrote kind of just follows just from his his answers surely if the same few companies repeatedly won work on big property schemes went the official line that was a simple matter of developer choice property develop pr- property professionals however had anecdotes to the contrary in 2018 a developer who had emerged from a meeting with a senior senior council planners, to discuss his plans for a new Manchester hotel told me, quote, I can't believe what I've just heard. I've just been told that I have to drop my architect and use one of three named firms. As a anecdote that supports the idea that there was this small clique and you basically had to work with those companies and those people in order to get things done, that is a pretty stunning piece of evidence. Have you published that that anecdote before?
0: No, uh, I have. My first draft actually had the names of the three firms. Let's have them. Let's and, have them. and the name of the developer, who's now longer, no longer a developer and is happy to uh, be named, I have. A, he, you know, he offered to give me an affidavit uh, to to that effect to back up that. that because you
1: were, your publisher,
0: our wonderful friends at Manchester University Press, well, there was, you, they were. They had potentially worried about defamation. They flagged it up, and I made the change myself because it actually doesn't matter. Uh, it to me, this story is not about naming those three architect firms, but it, the fact of the, the facts of the anecdote is is correct. So if you know if I was hauled in front of a judge, uh, I would name the three architect firms and the and everyone in the meeting if I had to. Um, and actually, it's an open se- it's an open secret, you know, um, about procurement in Manchester which is why when um, I was lobbied to um, with my role at the university, when I was on the Board of Governors, someone said, from the city council, said, why isn't Sir Howard Bernstein on the university's panel for ID Manchester when he's a, a, prof- a professor and has got a role there? And uh, they said, no, we're, we're doing... He's not on it. The university He's not on it to protect him from... Uh, perceptions of conflicts of interest. So they knew the way uh what the perceptions of procurement in Manchester is done. Mm. Um have I answered your question.
1: Yeah I think so. My follow-up question is given that there was this widespread perception that Manchester was run in this way, there have been differing views about whether that was a problem i mean it certainly feels like a sort of democratic problem it certainly feels like a problem in terms of different people not getting their their buildings built and or or different architects not getting opportunities the the counter argument is that these leaders that manchester had were extremely effective and you write the remarkable changes and, and and again it's slightly unfair to quote one line people should read the book obviously but the remarkable changes in the city overseen by bernstein and lee's sir richard lee's could never have been achieved without a politics stabilized by ironclad leadership is that is that kind of where you've landed on this question that they were they they they, they this manchester mafia as it were, were were basically incredibly effective because of that
0: and i know use the phrase of manchester mafia and actually it was a phrase used in a very good book called city of revolution which is an academic's book mm. uh, from 2003 um you've got to remember that this is not um a kind of conspiracy of uh, fifty Graham's Str- so at the start of chapter whatever, uh I'm in a, I'm at a, I'm at a leaving do for the evening news editor at Midland Hotel, and Graham Stringer MP walks in and he just disc- exclaims loudly behind me The same fifty people run Manchester. They always have. And that's that's the start of that chapter, isn't it? Yeah. Um yeah, but of, of 500 people work with them and then as managers and and be, and developers and so it's not a kind of a it's not a conspiracy of um of of string pulling and kind of machinations behind the scene it's, co-op, it's co opt it's some co-opting some cooperation um and maybe uh some uh Mage doing favours. They have built, they've rebuilt and revived, revived this this city through a variety of things. But you know, I've not given any indicate any. Um, um, uh, it's it's not about the the way you've characterised it is just looking at the top line mm-hmm. when running a city. Obviously, it's a far more complex thing than just people in in darkened rooms drawing up. Uh, blueprints and master plans. Um, there's been a lot of jobs. There's been a lot of work. There's been a lot of um, business activity, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I've been I've tried to get under the skin. a Bit like your very really, very good piece about Richard Lees You know, I've al- of, I've also teased out uh, things about him and about Howard Bernstein to try and get you know th- under the psychology of people who want to make a re- remake a city in this way. And anyone who thinks it's oh it's because they want to get rich or because they just want to you know control everything um, would be missing the pride and the you know let's just talk about Bernstein for a minute you know North Manchester boy father worked on the markets went into the council every other chief executive of, of a council that I've ever worked with is job hopping from place to place. They're like, uh, they're CEOs of big organizations, just like business CEOs. And there'll be a guy older, and the next is in Westminster. And that's exactly what, what happens. Bernstein has stayed in Manchester his whole life. And he came back from a weekend in Rome, saying their piazzas are just, just about as good as Manchester's. You know, this is the one-eyed kind of focus of the guy. Um, and some would say we're very lucky to have, very lucky to have had him because if you look at all the other cities who have done procurement and governance in a very uh, proper way, well, look at those places and then look at Manchester.
1: So then we come to the last passage. I feel like the book, first of all, I really, really enjoyed the book. I mean, I would do because it's sort of a it's it's an encyclopedia of all the things that, that you know we're trying to write. It It's to be here. funny as well. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's not it, an encyclopedia. Although <laughs> it, it, it's definitely funny in places. But I felt with this book like it's a chronicle. It's like it's like no one else is going to get down with this level of insane detail and insight and quotes. I feel like like you know, I mean, The Mill is quoted in there, even I'm quoted, I mean, I'm quoted in there, so it's kind of like <laughs> tens of thousands of people seem to, to be quoted in here. But it's like, this is the definitive, perhaps not the definitive, but it, it, it is a very, very sort of interesting account. And you really feel, I mean, uh, when I finished reading it, I, I was like, Molly needs to read this, Jack needs to read this, because then they'll understand all these things that, that go back a bit, a little bit further than us. Um, on page 341, which I think is pretty much the end of the book, you write about meeting Sir Richard Lees, who is obviously the, che- uh, the, the, the council leader, and you're building towards a hypothesis in this book, which is that the Hacienda and Factory and Tony Wilson and the music culture around those figures and places were the catalyst for the way Manchester's changed. I think that's fair. And you don't do it in a sort of putting it in your own voice kind of way. You allow other people to make the case. And, and then right at the end, we've got this bit. You meet up with Sir Richard Lees and you say, you say, are you right here? I ask him to consider the thought experiment. No, fa- no factory hacienda, no new Manchester. Ooh, he exclaims, the technocrat brain whirring, computing the notion. And then you quote him. It would have happened without factory, yeah, it would basically. And then you ask, what was the contribution of factory and hacienda to the way Manchester has changed? And he says a bit overstated. So then you quote, a v- <laughs> then you quote a very different figure, um, Peter Saville, and in a very Peter savile way, he says, quote, modern Manchester stands in part on the sacrifice made by Ian Curtis. Much of the aura of Manchester today is founded on the charisma of Factory, and Factory's charisma was founded on Ian. So the various people in the book say this, and I, and I feel like you, as you said at the beginning, you feel there's a certain uh, truth to it. On the very last page of the book, you write, and I think this is the sort of distillation of your, of your idea, the hacienda, was the first regeneration project of today's Manchester Salford revival when the unloved centre was open to anyone to come and play. So, so to, when you're writing this book, did you start with that as a hypothesis? Did you feel like there's a danger because I was involved in the Hacienda and that I knew Tony Wilson? Is there a danger that I'm putting the Hacienda lens on everything? How well do you think that argument has stood up with the people you've spoken to? Yeah. Tell me about that.
0: So, just to uh, slightly reprise, uh, I think it's quite almost fashionable now to to knock the Hacienda and to kind of scoff at its legend and the word nostalgia gets used. I mean, to find anyone to read this book and say I'm being nostalgic, um, I've looked at the evidence like any good journalist would. Tony Wilson said in 1982... It's necessary for cities to have their cathedrals. We are the only people in a position to do that. We're building this cathedral for popular culture. The name comes from a situationist manifesto about the ideal city. On the membership form, the original members form, the Hacienda, it states intention to restore a sense of place. And not only that, you keep going. What happened in 1991, when the police and the magistrates wanted to close it down, what did the city council do? Well, in any other city of the world, any place that had become a carnival of crime would have been shut down. They lobbied the magistrates, the police, they got Bob Liverland, the MP, to write to the magistrates and the police say, Serves a new economy. This is where this is Manchester's future economy. We can't afford this club to close, and it, and it was kept open. I mean, it, it failed eventually because of you know financial fashion and, and finances. Um, you know, then you draw the line to uh, the final manager of Hacienda, John Drape, was hired by Spinning Fields to launch Spinning Fields. Sasha Lord started promoting their. He's now the right-hand man of of Andy Burnham. Peter Saville, the factory designer, you know, one of the people behind the hacienda, was brought in to refresh the city's brand and the Manchester International Factory Festival came out of um, his original modern branding. So you've gone from the factory busman's uh, club in... uh, punk gigs at the Bus Drivers Club in Hume to the Factory International opening uh, this year. <coughs> £211 million, pounds, so that's some kind of crazy journey. Very cheap. Uh, very and good, and very and good <coughs> value. <coughs> and so, you know, hassid was about the city, and to me it did trigger uh, the whole thing. Uh, easy to knock down, but uh, I hope I provided plenty of evidence to back up my my... my ludicrous thesis
2: that is yoshi speaking to andy spinoza at the mill event in manchester this week um the book is worth a read yoshi i'm sure you enjoyed the chat with him as well nice guy intelligent guy
1: yeah really interesting guy he's been like helpful to the mill as well um advising us Um, and it was a really interesting conversation and if people like the sound of that conversation and they think they'd like to come to events like that and take part in the Q&A which took place afterwards which was really lively and really interesting if you like that kind of thing please do go and become
2: a Mill member you'll be invited to the next one um, very soon we've got a few more uh, lined up with Manchester University Press lovely good stuff and don't forget that you can subscribe to the Mill at manchestermill.co.uk and like and subscribe to this podcast as well you'll get us back in your podcast feed same time next week with more quality journalism from the city that you love in the meantime Yoshi, thank you thank you very much